Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, open it up to the New Testament, the book of Galatians. We are in a series where we're working our way through this book, and we have been learning just how important it is that we understand and that we believe and that we share the one true gospel, the good news, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, that the Apostle Paul, who wrote this, and the other apostles, they received that message from Jesus himself. And this book is all about making sure we've got that message right. Um, you know, it's ever since the gospel first began to be proclaimed, uh, there have been those who don't like it and who want to change it for various reasons. Uh, but as Paul makes very clear in this book, if you change the gospel, you lose the gospel. And if you lose the gospel you lose the only hope we have of knowing God, the true God, the God who made us, and uh, any hope of being right with him. So it's vital that we avoid being confused by those who oppose the gospel. <laughs> but what's interesting is that it's not just the gospel's opponents that can be confusing, Sometimes even those who love the gospel can mess it up. And that's, we, we see an example of this here in Galatians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse 11. And just to kind of, uh, you know, set, get, get our bearings here, Paul has been explaining uh, in the previous verses, uh, because there are those who are disputing that he's got the message right and disputing his apostleship. And so he's been explaining how it is that he became an apostle, how Jesus appeared to him and uh, gave him the message that he's been preaching from the very beginning. And making it very clear that the gospel he preaches is, is, is the real one. And so he's been down at this church uh, called Antioch, and uh, this, this incident happens, and uh, it's, very, it's very instructive for us. So we're going to be in chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. It says, but when Cephas, that's the apostle Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, now James would be a leader up in the church in Jerusalem, okay? So you need to know the church in Jerusalem, that's a church of Jewish Christians. Down in Antioch, this is a, this is a church of Gentiles, uh, non-Jewish people, believers in Jesus. Before certain men came from James, came down from Jerusalem, he, that is Peter, was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, the Jews. 
Now, when it says he was eating with the Gentiles, we're not talking about one meal here. Okay, this, this wasn't just one. This was uh, his habit. He'd been eating with them regularly, but then when these guys came down from Jerusalem, he began separating himself. And the rest of the Jewish, Jews, the Jewish Christians there, acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So what's happened here is that uh, prior to the coming of these people from Jerusalem, Peter and other Jewish Christians, man, they're hanging out with the Gentiles. They're enjoying the fellowship together as believers in Jesus. They're taking their meals together. And then some people come down from Jerusalem, and then they stop doing that. They begin to separate themselves. And Paul sees what's going on, and he says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And so he gets in Peter's face, very literally. And what we have here is an example of a good conflict. Now, that might sound weird to you. You might think, how could a conflict ever be good? Good and conflict don't go in the same sentence. Um, because many of us assume that conflict is always bad, and therefore we ought to avoid conflict at all costs. That is not a biblical perspective. Some conflicts are healthy, and this was one of them. Now, that doesn't mean it was enjoyable. I suspect Peter wasn't particularly having a good time right at this moment. Um, and, you know, conflict is seldom enjoyable. And I've said this before. If you're a person who really enjoys conflict, you probably should avoid it. And the people in your lives would appreciate it if you would. But most of us don't enjoy conflict at all. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. Uh, and so we tend to avoid it. And the problem is avoiding conflict usually makes things worse. The fact is, we're all imperfect. We are all imperfect. You probably know that. If you don't know it, ask your friends, ask your family. They'll tell you. And, as we have been reminded so vividly recently, we live in a very imperfect very broken world. So we're, we're broken, our world is broken, and that basically makes conflict inevitable. It's just going to happen. And so it's important that we learn how to handle conflict in good ways, ways that honor the Lord Jesus and the ways that are good for one another. Now, I said this is a good conflict. What made it good? Well, probably the main thing that made it good is it was necessary. This conflict had to happen. Now, not every conflict requires a direct confrontation like we see here between Paul and Peter, but this one did. This one did because of what was at stake. And what's, what was at stake was the very core of the gospel message. And that's really the, the main point of this whole book. What is the gospel really? Are we made right with God on the basis of what Jesus did 
Or is it by something we do, like keeping the law? And there's no issue more important than that. I know there are issues in life that feel more important than that at times. But the fact of the matter is, being right with God, knowing God, is the most important issue there is. So this is huge. And, and what Peter and the others were doing was putting the very message of the gospel, it was muddying the whole message. So it had to be dealt with. This was necessary. It's also a good conflict because it was pursued with good motives. So Paul here, he's not just, you know, insisting on his preferences. He's not saying, I think the church carpet should be blue. You think it should be brown. We're going to have a fight about this. It was not, it was not a matter of personal preference like that. Um, and he wasn't trying to make himself look good at the expense of others. We can do that in a conflict. Um, he's not trying to humiliate Peter. That's a bad motive. No, by confronting Peter and the others, he is basically pursuing their best interests. And that's, that's the, that is what loving one another is all about. Acting in someone else's best interests. This was good for Peter and the others because it was meant to get them back on track. They had gone off the rails. And Paul's trying to help them get back on the rails. He does it very directly. This was also good for the church. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, makes it very clear, and we're going to see this uh, explicitly elaborated on a little later in the book, but it makes it very clear that in Christ, in union with Christ, when we become joined to Jesus by faith, every single one of us is equal. Okay, we, there, there is no difference in value equal worth, regardless of our background, regardless of our social status, regardless of our nationality, our color, our gender, whatever. See, Jesus Jesus died to create this new humanity, to unite people in himself Make people one. There's new people who are one in him. But what Peter and these other Jewish Christians were doing would have made a unified church impossible. And this stark division between Jew and Gentile that existed outside of the church would have been exactly the same inside the church. And that's always a problem. When what Christians do is exactly the same as what the world does who don't know Jesus, the world rightly says, what difference does Jesus make? And the message would have been muddied, and, the, and, and Christ, the gospel of Jesus, would have been discredited. So this was huge. It was very good for the church that this happened. And this conflict's also good for us <laughs> here over 2,000 years later, mainly because it preserved the truth of the gospel for us. That has happened multiple times throughout history where it's like, we got to get back to the gospel. we got to get back and get the gospel right. So there was that, plus, as an added bonus, as it were, we get to learn uh, from this good conflict. So what I want to do 
in this time together is I want to point out some important and relevant lessons that we can learn from this good conflict. Now, let me state, I'm, this is not a seminar on how to handle conflict. Okay? I'm not going to talk about everything that could be talked about and should be talked about in terms of how to deal with conflict. That's, that's a whole other series, really. Um, but I think there are some really key lessons we can learn from this conflict that would be helpful to us. All right, so here we go. First one, first lesson. No one is above correction. No one is above correction. Because no one is above making mistakes. Even people who have known Jesus for a long time, people who know their Bibles really, really well, people who are serious about following Jesus, being filled with His Spirit, you know, wanting to do His will, people who get it right most of the time, the most wonderful Christians you know, still, at times, may probably will need some correction. Even you. Even you. See, being corrected is supposed to be a normal part of the Christian life. It's it's supposed to be a normal part of being a Christian. If you read through the New Testament and you read all the different things that Christians are supposed to do for one another, we're supposed to be speaking the truth in love to one another to help each other grow and become the people Jesus wants us to be, and that includes correction. It's supposed to be normal for us to do this because this is part of how God shapes us into the image of his son. Do you understand? That is what God wants for your life. That is God's will for you. It's for you to become more and more and more like Jesus, as kind as he is, as wise as he is, as truthful, as forgiving, and all those things. And so, and until we're there, until God is done with that work in our lives, there's not a person in this room who is above correction. Doesn't matter. Me, the other elders, leaders, teachers, you know, everybody. Now, no, nobody. Nobody's above correction. Everybody needs it. Now, here's where I get that lesson from this passage, okay? It's based on who gets corrected, because it's pretty surprising. Talking about Peter. Peter, the one to whom Jesus said, you are Peter, Petros, rocky rock. You are Petros, and upon this Petra rock, massive rock, I will build my church. Now, there is obvious disagreement between Catholics and Protestants about the exact significance of these words, but the least we can say is that Peter had a prominent role among the disciples. He was one of the inner three. The three men who were the closest to Jesus during his earthly ministry, Peter, James, and John. And it was Peter who, on the day the church began in Jerusalem, this was the guy who stood up and boldly proclaimed the gospel of Jesus, and over 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus. And, this is what's really ironic, 
Peter is the guy that God used to pioneer taking the gospel to the Gentiles in the first place. If you realize when the church started, initially it was all Jewish people, church in Jerusalem. And then God chooses Peter, sends him to a guy named Cornelius, and all these Gentiles hear the gospel from Peter, and Peter sees God pour out his spirit. He pours out his spirit on the Gentiles, making absolutely no distinction whatsoever between them and the Jewish people. And he got in trouble for it. Well, when word got out that Peter had done this, that he had gone to the home of a Gentile, because this was a big no-no in Jewish culture, when, when people heard that, he didn't back down. In fact, he said in Acts eleven seventeen, he said, look, if God gave them, the Gentiles, the same gift that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, he's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So if there's anybody that understood the gospel, if there's anybody who understood that this old division between Jew and Gentile is completely done away with in Christ, it's Peter. And yet he's blowing it. Big time. And then, this one really blows my mind. Barnabas. Barnabas. Barnabas was also key in reaching out to the Gentiles. So this church in Antioch, where this confrontation took place, okay, this, this was a Gentile church, <clears throat> and Barnabas had gone there to help them. In fact, when the Jewish Christians up in Jerusalem heard about all these Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus down there in Antioch, and the church was getting started, notice what they did, Acts eleven twenty two. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So he's down there, he's teaching. People are coming to know Jesus. Now he got a whole bunch of people to teach. It's too many for him. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Who's that? That's the Apostle Paul. Barnabas is the reason Paul's in Antioch. And, they, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Barnabas, Paul's buddy, <clears throat> this guy who cares so much about these Gentile Christians that he, he leaves his home, and he goes and he hangs out with them for a year, teaching them, He brings Paul to them. He's so glad to see them experiencing the grace of God, to see them be full participants in the church. Even Barnabas gets carried away by this nonsense. No longer eating with his Gentile brothers. Okay, what is it that can possibly explain this inconsistent, this hypocritical, that's the word Paul uses, this unchristian behavior of Peter and Barnabas and the others. What could explain that? It's in verse 12. Fear. Fear. 
Peter did what he did, and Barnabas went along because they were afraid. What were they afraid of? Apparently, they were afraid of what other people would think. They were afraid of what other people might do. So they knew some of their Jewish acquaintances would not approve of them eating with Gentiles, and they caved. They just caved. It's called the fear of man. It's caring too much about what other people think. It's caring more about the opinion of people than the opinion of God. And we are all prone to this. We are all vulnerable to this. But this fear, the fear of man, always leads us in the wrong direction. Always. Look at Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You see there? Notice how the opposite of fearing man is trusting in the Lord. So see, that tells us how to fight it. It tells us how to fight the fear of man. The way you fight the fear of man, the way you you don't care too much about other people's opinions, is you, you need to trust Jesus better. And here's how I think that works. Here's how I think that works. When you know, when you know you have God's full approval, which is exactly what we have in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. In union with Christ, we have God's full approval, full acceptance. We are his children. We are his people. He doesn't look at us with this. He doesn't. Welcome arms of a dad. When you know you have God's full approval, then you don't need the approval of anybody else. Now, you're going to want it, and it might sting if you don't get it, but you don't have to have it to be okay. And that's the critical piece. To know that if I have God's approval in Jesus Christ, I may want other people's approval, but if I don't get it, it'll sting, but I'll be okay. I'll be okay. And it's never good. It is never, it just, it's not good. It doesn't work. It's bad. What else can I say? To to pursue somebody's approval somebody's affection, somebody's, you know, thinking we're awesome at the expense of God's truth, of something God has said, preeminently the gospel, that never is good. And see, this is one more reason why we've got to, we've got to get the gospel right, because we've got to preach it to ourselves. We've got to preach it to ourselves. We find ourselves, you know, want somebody's approval. We got to say, whoa, 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 careful. I need to confidently say, so we can confidently say, this is Hebrews 13, 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I have God's approval. What can man do to me? I'll be okay. In Christ, I have God's approval. In Christ, I have eternal life. So even if he kills me, not Christ, but somebody... 
I have God's approval. I have eternal life. I have all the promises that Jesus is going to fulfill. I don't have to be afraid of people. So, here's how we can apply this to our lives. Ask yourself this question. We each need to ask this. Are you open to correction? Are you open to correction? How do you respond when somebody comes along and speaks truth into your life that might be a little, you know, sting a bit? Do you realize that if you belong to Jesus, you never have to feel threatened by anybody's correction or criticism, even if it's not well-intentioned? Because God is always for you. You don't have to pretend to be perfect. You don't have to feel like a loser and beat yourself up if somebody points out an area where you still need to grow. Of course you have areas in your life where you still need to grow. My goodness. When somebody, you know, I know our first reaction is usually to get defensive, but if we thought about it, we could say, when somebody tells us, hey, I've noticed there's an area where you need to grow, we could say, boy, you better believe it. You don't know the half of it. <laughs> if you really knew, you'd have more to say. If nobody is ever correcting us, if nobody is ever speaking words to help us grow, it doesn't mean we're perfect. What it probably means is we're not very open to correction and we've let that be known. Or, or it could also be we're just not doing that good of a job of loving one another and we, we need to do better. We need to grow. Nobody's above correction. Second lesson, question your culture. Question your culture. <clears throat> now, we're all influenced by our culture in lots of ways whether we're aware of it or not. So the customs, the values, the norms, you know, what's normal in our society, those things all have a big impact on, on how we think, how we feel, how we make decisions, how we relate to other people. For example, here in America, we're really big on free speech, freedom of speech. And the way that tends to show itself is um, we're very quick to share our opinions about everything, whether we know anything about it or not. We just do that. You know, by golly, I'm entitled to my opinion, and you're entitled to my opinion too. Freedom of speech. And I don't know if you know this, but there are people from other nations, they think this really weird. I think it's really weird. I used to meet weekly with a guy from Japan, it was an exchange student thing, and I met with him because it was this uh, thing to, you know, help him learn English better and all that, and, uh, you know, I'd meet with him, and he was very quiet, very, you know, kept to himself, and so I'm like trying to find out from this guy, you know, learn more about him, and one of the things I wanted to know is, so what do you think, what do you think of America, what do you think of Americans, and he didn't really want to tell me, uh, but then I finally got it out of him, he basically thought, that Americans were kind of arrogant for expressing their opinions about everything. And so I said, arrogant? What are you talking about? What's wrong with you? <laughs> no, I didn't do that. <laughs> culture. culture. 
Culture influences us big time. And the thing is, is we, we have to question our culture with the truth of God's word. It, you know, we, we read this about Peter and these guys not eating with the Gentiles. We think, what is their problem? What is wrong with these guys? Do you understand how completely countercultural it was for them to hang out and eat with Gentiles? I mean, this, this one change that Jesus brought about was so radical. These guys had grown up in a culture that was deeply segregated. And there was no interaction between Jew and Gentile unless it was absolutely necessary. And eating with Gentiles, that was eating with God's enemies. You didn't do that. Jews ate with Jews, Gentiles ate with Gentiles. That's just the way it was. And so, you know, for Peter and Barnabas and these other guys, you know, they're eating with them. That was a learning experience. And then all of a sudden they started getting a little pressure not to do that anymore. I think it was really easy to go back to their old ways. That's what they had grown up doing. That's what they'd done their whole lives until just a little while ago. And I think it would have been really easy maybe to justify this. Now, I don't know for sure that this is what happened, but this is one possible scenario. One of these guys from Jerusalem comes over and says, hey, Peter, come here, let's talk. You know, Word is getting around that you guys are pretty chummy with these Gentiles. And Peter, it's giving our enemies a lot of ammunition. Because now the priests and the Pharisees and all the people who oppose us anyway, now they're saying they've heard you guys are eating with Gentiles. And so they're telling everybody, you guys are out to destroy Judaism. And so our fellow Jews who don't yet know the Messiah, that's the conclusion they're jumping to. Now look, Peter, you and I know that in Jesus, we know that Jews and Gentiles are equal. We know that. And look, we're going to be spending all eternity together. Is it really so bad if we don't eat together right now? And Peter and Barnabas let themselves be more influenced by their culture than by the gospel. And that is really easy to do. And that brings us to lesson three. Measure everything by gospel-centered thinking. Measure everything by gospel-centered thinking. Look at verse 14. Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That is a question we need to ask ourselves again and again and again. Is this conduct, is this behavior, is this habit, is this thing I'm doing, is this in step with the gospel? Yes, it's true. If Peter did not eat with the Gentiles, that may have made things much more comfortable for the folks back home in Jerusalem. You know something? Comfort is not a gospel priority. And God had already made his priority clear when he gave his Holy Spirit to the Gentiles when they put their faith in Jesus, period. Full approval. Full acceptance. Full participation in the church. 
Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you, he's writing to Gentiles here, you Gentiles who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Don't rebuild a wall that God has broken down. We must not do something that undermines what Jesus came to accomplish through his death and resurrection, even if it feels culturally okay. Even if our culture says that's good, that's fine. See, being a Christian is really a radical thing. It's really radical. Uh, if, if you think that somehow you can be a believer in Jesus, you can know Jesus and he won't try to change you. He won't ask you to do anything you're not comfortable with. He won't ask you to ever do anything awkward. He won't change the way you live. Boy, have you got the wrong message. That is not it. As Tim Keller says, If your faith in Jesus never challenges how you think about anything, it's questionable whether you really understand what it means to believe in Jesus. Colossians 1.18 tells us that Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. That's a reference to his resurrection, his death and resurrection, so that in everything he might have what? The supremacy. Supremacy in everything. You see that word? Everything. Jesus died and rose from the dead to be supreme, to be supreme over everything in your life and everything in my life. Everything. So the gospel needs to challenge how we think about everything, including all the things we just take for granted as part of our culture or subculture, all the cultures we're a part of. So how we think about relationships, how we think about marriage, how we think about sexuality, how we think about Children, education, entertainment, work, the environment, politics, what we say on Facebook, how we relate to people we disagree with. So whether you're a conservative or a liberal, do you measure the positions of your side by God's word? Or do you simply assume they're right because that's your culture and those are your people? Does how you spend your time, does that match up with Christ's priorities for your life? I am not saying this is easy. I'm saying this is huge and it's important and we need to be doing this regularly as part of our lives. And this is where one of those areas we're going to need one another's help. We're going to need one another's correction to lovingly speak into each other's life and help us do this to think gospel-centeredly about everything, everything, and be open to correction when we're not doing it right. And then one more. Your example is a powerful force. Your example is a powerful force. I'm really struck that Paul here asks Peter how he can force the Gentiles to live like Jews. Think about that. I'm sure Peter didn't think he was forcing anybody to do anything. He's just eating. 
Just eating the way he'd been raised. And yet, because of who he was, because of who God had called him to be, because of this role God gave him, he was so influential. He influenced many people, including Barnabas, in the wrong way. His example was powerful, so powerful that actually, without intending so, he was basically forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews. Your example is powerful. Your example is powerful. If your parents... And somebody told me this years ago, and I wanted to dismiss it, but it's true. Children may do what you say, but they tend to become what you are. Dads, how do you raise your sons to become husbands who, as it says in Ephesians, Love their wives as Christ loved the church. You know how? By your example of how you love their mother. Moms, how do you influence your daughters to become wives who will, according to Ephesians, respect their husbands? By how you show respect to their father, even when you disagree with him. Parents, how do you get your kids to value God's priorities above our culture's priorities? Answer, by how you show them you value God's priorities over the culture. It doesn't matter who you are, somebody's influenced by your example. Whether you're a teacher, a leader, a friend, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a neighbor, there are people you influence with your example, and your example is powerful whether you realize it or not. So realize it. Let's realize it. Let's make the most of it. You're not going to do it perfectly. That goes back to point number one. But the goal is to show others, to show people what an authentic relationship with Jesus looks like, even as we're figuring that out. And what it looks like when you blow it. Show them what a real apology looks like. Show them what real repentance looks like. Ask Jesus to help you make your example something other people can learn the gospel from. So, there's some lessons. As I said, this was not designed to be, here's everything you need to know about handling conflict, but I think these are three, four lessons that are important and if, if, if we want to live that gospel-centered life that influences our world for Christ, these are some things we need to keep in mind. So let's ask God to penetrate our heart with these things. Will you join me in pray? Uh, Father, I thank, you for, um, I thank you for giving Paul the courage to... Uh, to call out a brother and to challenge him because he needed it. And I pray you would help us have that kind of courage. But God, help us do it in love 
And Lord, help us become the people you want us to be. Uh, may our example be that of a genuine, growing relationship with you, Lord. Show us what that means as, as we take your word in deeply and we, we challenge everything by your truth and we measure everything by your truth. Give us the courage, the wisdom, the faith to trust you and do what you've called us to do. Because we trust you, not because we're trying to earn your favor, but because you've given it to us in Jesus. Thank you. In his name, amen.